The thing about this cat, I think, is it knew that. It was keeping this methodical line, which made it completely invisible from the farms and the fair mets. The dogs would never have seen it. That's the first question. Did you take a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive. Because when you say no, people say, well, it didn't happen. You're on the back foot of what's your little story. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. For our next guest, we are catching up with recent events in Scotland with investigator David McEwen, who is based near Edinburgh. David works closely with fellow investigator Paul MacDonald, who we recently heard from in episode 61. And David also helps with the coordination for the Facebook group Big Cat Sightings in Scotland. So David, welcome to the show. Hi Rick, thanks for having me. Pleasure David. And David, I gather you are a guest who has not seen a big cat, but you investigate and follow up reports and take reports via the Facebook group. How did you become interested in the subject? And is it ever frustrating not being a witness yet? Hopefully, maybe you will see one one time. But does it frustrate you not having had a sighting of your own? It does frustrate me because obviously we get an influx of sightings quite a lot. And certainly in my local area as well. And it does frustrate me that I'm not able to see one because Paul has had a, a few sightings. But I think in the investigating terms, it is quite good to have somebody there that hasn't seen one as well. In some weird way, you know, I think it helps. I've not seen one, so I might view things slightly different still. A different layer of objectivity in some way. Yes. So it does frustrate me that I've not seen one. Don't get me wrong. I get a lot of daft looks when, you know, I, I tell people that I've not seen one yet. I'm out here investigating and looking for one, especially for my life. It's all still good fun. You know, a lot of people just write it off straight away and say, oh, there's no such thing. I mean, I've got a different view from that. I look at the evidence, I look at what people have seen, you know, their stories, and take it from there and make the best judgment I can on that. Sure. How did you get into the topic in the first place? Growing up, you see it in the newspaper, everything like that. It's never really been more than sort of like a wee twinkle in your eye. You know, you get that wee sort of schoolboy enjoyment out of it for a couple of days. It was actually during COVID. It was actually during the, the first lockdown. Okay. We were getting a lot of stories about, you know, all, all these animals uh, starting, you know, like, what was it, wolves and boars, stuff and like that, going through Normandy, Calais. You were getting bears for the first time, I think, in the north of Spain in like 150-odd years or something like that. And I thought, well, this might be the chance to actually see something like that in the UK. And it sort of just went from having that wee idea well if you know animals are starting to encroach back into our habitats we might end up seeing something like a big cat so i ended up going on to facebook i'm on loads of different facebook groups throughout the uk and i ended up joining big cat sightings in scotland put a post up to say you know look is there any local investigators and then that's how i ended up meeting paul we went from there so all very recent really a year, maybe, if you think about it, a year and a bit, really, uh, that I've been doing this. And a lot of it during lockdown as well, which isn't really easy with all these restrictions. Sure. 
You were telling me that um, you've read some of the Jim Corbett books and you've taken inspiration from them. We've mentioned Jim Corbett before in the podcast series, yeah. especially episode, uh, I think it was episode four with Frank Tunbridge, because he's a great fan of Jim Corbett and always often mm. cites the examples of the patient tracking that the great British English game hunter used for his work in actually tracking down man-eating tigers and leopards in the first part of the 1900s in, uh, in India, wasn't it? You've read some of his books and um, they sort of do it for you, is that right? Yeah, so I've read them all. They're a great read. It's about hunting these animals. He takes you through the process of how he hunts them, you know, and it's about what you should listen to, what you should look for in tracks. It explains everything. You know, one of the best ones is, is the jungle folk, as he would call them, which is the other animals that are around in the woodland. Well, it would be jungles there, but woodlands here, you know, you can relate to it. What prayers are about how are the animals acting at the time when you're in there? You know, it can be telltale signs if there's another predator in there, the immediate area. He just takes you through all the processes of what you would do to hunt it. And he's doing this with no technology. I think the most technological thing he had at that point in time was a torch. That was very new at that point in time. So you can sort of relate when you, you're going in with no knowledge and the most that me and Paul use is a, a trail camera every now and again. The rest of the time we're in there with a pair of binoculars and walking the ground. So it's it's kind of helpful. If you've not if you've got very little to no resources, giving these books a read. It's not only enjoyable, it's a very good read, but you can actually use and relate some of these things into what you're doing if you're being an active investigator. Yeah. Basic tracking skills, yeah, elementary. Yeah, basic basic tracking skills, you know, what prey's about, you know, where you've seen a lot of deer, you know, he takes you through looking at pug marks and stuff like that as well. You know, he takes you from A to B, and it really is quite an interesting read. And he wasn't just the big hunter, he was also a photographer and a, a massive naturalist as well. So it's, it's quite nice to see all points of view put into the one book. Yes, you can get compilation books actually which i i've read the omnibuses that's right and uh, the powers of description you feel you're there right with him in the thick of it to pick up the vibes never been there and it looks lovely jim corbett tells you the story of the local people and that as well it seemed like a very lovely culture that they do live in definitely nice to go there and see the leopards thank you for that and so on to scotland and we're going to get a couple of highlights from you because there's been two really significant incidents over the summer, mainly 2021 in Scotland. We're going to hear from you about. And the first one is one I think you led the follow-up investigation on, and it was a near miss with a vehicle. So a near miss collision with a big cat. You actually met the uh, the car driver, didn't you, at the scene? So it was, it was luckily it was in my local area, which was very handy. So I went, I went down and met the chap. We've had a couple of sightings in that area before. So we've got the map. You know, we take everything, you know, all the historic sightings as well as new ones, you know, just to try and build a good a good map, a good timeline as well. This is about 10 miles outside of Edinburgh, is it? Roughly about that, yeah. It's roughly about 10 miles outside of Edinburgh. The maps, we seem to see that it's, it's following the certain river that's running through our local area. This sighting's fallen exactly where that is, you know. It's right beside the river as well. It's in a, a good forest area, high embankments on each side. It was very nice. There's a lot of wildlife in there as well. Basically, 
he's came around this very, very sharp corner as this uh, animal's came out from them, shot out of the embankment. He's clipped it. Bent on the car. It was a Nissan Qashqai, a Nissan Qashqai, if I remember correctly. So it's got quite a high bumper on it. It hit just below the, so I think it was about two foot up. It was just below the headlight that this animal hit. So it was an animal of some size. So he did impact it? It did impact it, yeah. It was his brand new car and it hit it. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> he'd only had it about four days at this point in time. So I went down and I seen the marks myself. The gentleman uh, did check for hair and any sort of blood on the car, but unfortunately there was none. There was just sort of a dent in it, a light dent in it. So we met up with the chap. He's had another couple of signs as well. So he sort of knows what he's looking at, if you like. Met the gentleman. We went for a wee walk. We had a look at exactly where he'd uh, hit it. So we're looking for entry points and exit points from one woodland from across the road to the other set of woods, if you like. Unfortunately, as well, it was quite a hard, compact ground where we were. So there wasn't much chance of getting any prints or anything like that. And there was a lot of leaves on the ground as well. But we did have a good investigation, a good wee walk around the area just to check to see if we, we see anything lying as well. You know, often it, if you have uh, cats as pets, you know that when they're injured, they act differently from dogs. So cats will tend to skulk away and hide. Yeah. Are injured. If they've been hit by a car, you're, you're not going to find them lying there straight away unless they've been taken out straight away. So, you know, we went for a wee walk, but unfortunately, well, I, I would say unfortunately we couldn't see anything, but, you know, fortunately we didn't find anything either, if you like. You know, we want to find these animals, but we don't want to find them hurt. Exactly. What kind of impact did he think it was? Did he think it was severe and could have been fatal, or was it just a brush, or was it not sure? He'd hit the animal. It still ran off by that point in time, so it didn't strike to me be fatal anyway. There was no signs of blood on the road. I'd, I'd literally, I think I'd went down and investigated it because we got the, the sighting report through late evening so it was, it was too late to go out at that point in time or I couldn't go out at that point in time but I investigated it the next day there was no blood trail or anything like that on the road there was no signs of anything like that so I, I think it was just a, a light impact uh, on the animal N- nothing severe enough to do any injury yeah and what was his description of the animal five foot in length black so standard sort of black leopard, black panther type of description, was it? Yeah. Yeah. He gave the body length and then the tail length. So it was like, you know, the body, but then when you added the tail, you could tell it had a very long tail, which is something that we obviously look for quite often, especially when it comes to your black cats, your big black cats, you know, your leopards, such like your puma. They all have that big, long, drooping tail, if you like. Curves round with that flick at the end. His description was bang on, which is normally what we look for. Nine times out of ten, you know, if, you, if you've grown up around cats or dogs, you should be able to tell the difference, I think. Yeah, yeah. Did he jam the brakes on to soften the impact, or did he hit it full on? No, no, he, he put the brakes on to try and stop it. He shot out, put the brakes on. But it was obviously too late and he, he hit it. But on that stretch of road, you wouldn't go that fast anyway, especially when you're coming up to that corner. It's quite a notorious one. It's quite well known on that corner. You know, he says he was only going at about 30 coming down the road as well. 
So it's quite a heavy animal that he's hit as well. He's previously seen one. All the the description, there was a tick in every box that we would need for that. Look for length, height, hair colour, head, ears. It took all our boxes, so we were quite happy with that. Good on him that you guys got to hear and could follow up very swiftly. Was there any potential crossing, mammal crossing point around the area that you could put a trail camera at, perhaps, if, especially if you knew the, got to know the landowner? It's quite an open uh, public area, unfortunately. You know, there's a lot of people walking about and stuff like that, so it wasn't really ideal for us to have a camera up there. Putting the camera out is quite a hard one because obviously we don't want to interrupt anybody else in their daily routine as well. Our cameras, you know, we've only got a certain amount, so we've got to try and delegate them to the highest areas of interest as well. It's quite a hard one, you know, we would love to have, you know, 100 cameras and be able to put them out all over the place, but it's just not practical, unfortunately. The fact as well is because it's quite an open area, to try and hide the camera wasn't really that plausible there either. It's just quite disappointing. Yeah, okay. And uh, well, interesting that that's always a potential of, of having blood or hair from a, an impact that you could then um, sample and test. But of course, that didn't happen. Good on him that he's made contact and he's sort of keeping vigilant for that area. As you say, it confirmed or it reinforced the sightings that you'd had previously in that general vicinity. So, in that general vicinity, there's an old uh, hospital. It's disused and closed now, but it had a lot of sightings there as well, and it was only about a mile away. So it's it's relatively close. You know, there's I think there's about three or four sightings within a mile of each other. It's always good when you get historic sightings and then you get fresh sightings, and they're all matching up and heading in the right direction. Yeah, and these are all black ones, are they, in that area? Uh, no. So I'll say I would work in like a five-mile radius, so I would call sort my local area if you like so this one would be contained in my local area it is mainly black i would say probably about 85 to 90 percent of our sightings are black and we've got probably about eight percent would then go sort of like your browns so like your pumas and that and then the other two are left up to like your lynx type sightings no tail pointy ears you know Brown could also be a lynx and it could also be a puma, but then we sort of try and narrow it down to whether we've got what the ears are looking like, you know, the size difference and the tail difference there. But we've got a wee bit of a mixture. But, yeah, certainly, like I say, 85 to 90% of our uh, big cat scenes are black. Yeah, well, that's fairly similar to the sort of national trend, isn't it, where, you know, it's sort of, I tend to say, it's yeah. sort of three-quarters-ish black and a quarter-ish Sandy Brown, Puma, and the odd few, say 5%, lynx-like, and, and sometimes a few others like occasional black serval or jungle cat and that sort of thing, but it is those three. I'm sure there was somebody I actually got interviewed on one of your previous podcasts for Scotland. There has been a couple of like servals or, or jungle cats or something like that that have been put into the mixture as well. Not very often, but it's always interesting when you get one of these sightings that are out with the normality, if you like. Absolutely, yes. That was a, an assumed jungle cat, that one, I think. Mm. That was um, sort of country park in the Dundee sort of area. Can we go on to another 
case. I think this was just a little bit earlier in the summer in South Edinburgh. There were at least three days running when you guys were getting reports from different people, but in the same residential areas in South Edinburgh of, I think it was a black one, big black one, seen in people's gardens. I think one of the viewers, one of the witnesses actually saw it from bedroom window on the neighbour's garden shed looking down sunning itself looking down can you tell us about that case yeah so basically the first night we had we got a phone call or an email about a big black cat basically being seen crossing from a house in the state into a tiny wee wood block going towards a shopping center it was a well-walked path it's urban as, as you can get if you like yeah I did see a big black cat whilst uh, walking my dog tonight, 100% not a domestic is how it starts. Maybe five to three foot long, long hanging tail nearly to the ground. So, I mean, we've got quite a big size. The tail's sort of matching there right straight away. She says there was a, they often get foxes and such like in that area as well. I know the area quite well, but, you know, the lady was adamant that she'd seen a big black cat. So we went out to investigate. I think it was early hours of the morning of when she seen it. I was, we, we went within a, f- a few hours of her seeing it. We went to have a look and we couldn't get our heads around it. <laughs> <laughs> we just couldn't. We, we turned up and we're like, but where's it came from? So you've got two grown men standing there scratching their heads for a wee while. But eventually we, we started to go through the processes. You know, we had a wee wander through this wee wood block. It was... I mean, it was only about eight foot wide, if you were lucky. So it's not a big wood block at all. But we, we had a look at it, and we, we, we started to put the, the points together as well. We often look for like a, we refer to it as like a belt. So it's like, where have they came from? You know, so where could they have been hiding up? You know, where's their lair, if you like? You know, where's the biggest plot in natural habitat that they might have came from to get to here? Yeah, a corridor. Yeah. There we go, a corridor. We, we refer to it about, but corridor works as well, yeah. So basically, we found a couple. One of them was actually coming from the river. The river wasn't actually that far. There was a lot of housing to get through to get to where we'd seen it. A lot of our sightings at the moment are matching up with such like as the river. The river seems to be the main walkway, if you like. Everything seems to to stem off of the river, which is quite a good sign. So yeah, this one, it was coming off. That's another thing, Lady C, you know, it had big eyes as well, you know. Big eyes looking at her. She says it looked like a jaguar. Colour was black, wasn't it, uh, David? Black, yeah. There was two different ways that it could have came from, so we walked a ridiculous amount that night just to try and figure out actually what way this animal might have came from ended up getting in contact with the shop that was there as well to see if we could get some CCTV footage as well, which we often quite do. Not everybody's up for giving it to us, but we actually got quite a good response back from them. And they says that they were actually down that night, but if there's anything else that comes up from it, they'll get in touch with us. Okay. Or feel free to get back in touch with them, which is always a great response. You know, we always try to make contact with people you know, make relations with people so that we try and at least get access to these things. Obviously, it's harder, which is understandable due to all the laws now in place. 
but you know it's it's still nice to touch base with these people. But yeah, that one. So basically, it was it was two nights in a row. I think uh, yeah, it was it was two nights in a row. So we had that, and then it, about not that far away. I'm going to say about four or five streets away. We had our sighting the next night with the exact same description, except this time it was sitting on top of somebody's summer house. That witness, that person reporting that second one, second incident, they didn't know anything about the first one. No, I'm sure it had been kept off social media. The one lucky thing that we have is, is Paul is now, whenever you type in Big Cat Sightings in Scotland, Paul's name comes up straight away, I think. So you can actually get in contact directly with Paul via email now. Not everybody wants to put their, their sightings up on Facebook or anything like that. So a lot of people get in touch with Paul directly. So they didn't have a clue that this other sighting had happened. It wasn't actually until after, I think it was the second person to actually put it up on Facebook to say, look, we've had a sighting, has anybody else had a sighting? And then we had we had sort of like a, a Facebook chat going on there as well, which is quite good. We've, we've went to Facebook quite a few times to try and generate sightings. You know, so we'll go to like local form pages and stuff like that. And uh, Paul will put up a paragraph or two explaining what we're doing and asking if anybody's had any sightings. Quite often generate quite a lot of sighting reports from that. Yeah which is quite good as well. So it's quite a good thing to see. But yeah, these two people had no clue that each other had had a sighting, which was quite good. We have got a couple others like that as well in the local area. It's like, you know, nobody's jumping on the bandwagon, if you like. I don't know if it, you know, not mean to insult anybody or anything like that. But so, yeah, we were really excited about that. I think we spent a couple of nights out and about just in hope that we might catch a glimpse, you know, trying to cover corridors of where this animal might be coming in. You know, it was it was trying to divide and conquer, which is quite hard when there's only two of you. Both sightings were exactly the same descriptions, you know, black, you know, five foot, long drooping tail, big eyes, you know, the rounded ears, which is 100% what we're looking for. And in very residential areas. So I got it wrong. It wasn't on top of a garden shed. It was on top of a summer house. Summer house, yeah, right, yeah. I've got it the other now, yeah, summer house. I gather, I think Paul at the time told me that there were two dogs in that garden during the daytime. So the thought was, was it sunning itself? Was it eyeing up the dogs? Or was it just finding a, a perched vantage point, you know, higher up? So it could have been any of those, couldn't it? Were the informants, were the witnesses a little bit worried because they were seeing an animal like that in a residential area? I find you always get a wee bit of worry. Uh, you always get a wee bit of worry, you know, folk, especially when it's so urban as what it was. Yeah. It was literally in the middle of the town, you know. One of them was right at our industrial estate, so it's floodlighted, it's as bright as you can get, you know, on the outskirts of a house in the state. The other one was bang in the middle of the town. It's so urban, it's unreal. Which is, is weird, because you think, you know, Scotland's got such a high uh, number of deer, yeah. You know, you've got a lot of their natural prey in Scotland. So question is, is why would they be encroaching into an urban environment? But if you look up in India and stuff like that, so leopards and such like, they will encroach. You know, there's constantly videos on YouTube of leopards in India and stuff like that, you know, taking domestic animals yeah, uh, and such like. It's not a common thing, don't get me wrong, 
It's not a massively common thing, but they can do it. You know, they are willing to do it, and they will scavenge as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't at the time hear of any dogs or cats or anything like that going missing? It's one of the things we do check on. I think on one of them, actually, there was at that point in time a missing cat at that point in time, but it was only the one. There was no loads of them, so there was no real cause to try and investigate that any further, if you like. Yeah. You know, we, we always look at them, but if there's an, a massive influx over a few weeks or something like that, then that's when you start to think, well, that's more like something's, you know, there's a predator in the area. So it's something that we always look at, you know, livestock, your pets, you know, dogs, cats, such like. It's always good to touch base with somebody as well, if you can. So I, I know a lot of people around the local area, you know, a lot of folk that'll hunt gamekeepers, such like. Touch base with them. What's the animal, you know, what's the rabbit population like at the moment? You know, you've seen a lot of them, you know, what are the deer population at the moment in the local area? Is there a lot going about or not? It's always a good indication for me if these people are experienced with these things, are telling you, well, actually, I've not seen a lot. They seem to be in the downfall. Oh, has there been a disease now? We've not had any sign of disease or any that we've got, you know, such like that. You know, any natural ways other than a predator in the area. You know, we always look at that as well. Just to try and join the dots and make sure that we're not just jumping to conclusions, but we're actually investigating it properly. Yeah. This episode of the two or three nights running of the Black Panther in the residential area, that then it just sort of stopped, didn't it? You were all sort of primed for more, and it, <laughs> I gather it just yeah. <laughs> didn't happen. We're like a couple of schoolboys. We're like, oh, yes, let's go. And after a while, when we don't get something, we start to get itchy feet, and it's a, it's a little bit annoying. But, yeah, we're all primed to ready to go, and then it stopped. Now, there was a gentleman, and I can't remember the... I can't remember the episode, but it has a theory that they actually might come back to that area around about the same time next year, if you like. Yeah, so you're, next summer you'll be sort of looking out. Looking out in that local area for any sort of reports. We've investigated it this time. We've got all the dates. We've got all the information we need. So we'll probably try and follow that avenue and follow that theory. You know what I mean? We're no experts or anything like that, but... We try to do it as properly as we can, and we try to follow every avenue to get as accurate as we can as well. Yes, I mean, there could be something in that theory about the cats know the seasonal advantages of certain locations in their territory for prey behaviour, that sort of thing. That, and also, I mean, do we have a local sort of female with her territory in this area who's having cubs? You know what I mean? And at that point in time, she's kicked them out and that this is them now roaming to try and find their own territory or whatnot. There's always that avenue to follow down as well. You know, we did have another urban site in, which was a wee bit further out for us to actually go and investigate, but we got a really good witness report off of the fellow and it was the same. Two, three nights in a row, boom, 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 seeing a couple of different reports, then nothing. Yeah. Because we're on the three, it's, it's a wee bit far for us to go, but if we end up getting another site in, because I happened to fall when this guy was working and stuff like that, and a couple of other folk had seen it around about the same time as him in the local area. So we're like, right, well, if we get another site tonight, we're going to have to just go and investigate. We're going to have to go up there. Day sack ready to just grab and go, and nothing. <laughs> you know, n- nothing again. We've got a couple of these incidents that are happening in a similar way. You know, we've got a... A corridor for them to come into, although the one 
in our local area that happened the two nights in a row, the one with this on top of the summer house. We had a, a hard time finding exactly what way they would come in, but eventually we actually managed to get up to higher ground and get a really good view of it as well. I looked at the maps and that when we were out there as well. We figured out a couple of different ways that it could get in, even though there were there wasn't a lot of cover for them to have. We've got areas for next, you know, next year at the same time. We've got places where we'll be hopefully going to be putting a trail camera out. You know, we'll, we we know certain corridors that we're going to be sitting in to to see if we can get a glimpse of it. And you've made contact with more people, so you've got a bigger network of of informants yeah. and witnesses who are going to be helping you if they hear about anything or see anything again. So it's all investing time, isn't it, in um, building up your grapevine? Yeah, a lot of it. Certainly for me, because I'm relatively new to it, but a lot of it is, you know, building up the grapevine, just getting boots on the ground, really, and getting to talk to people and getting to know folk. folk even even people that haven't seen it, you know, we, we knock on, like, a farmer's door or something like that. They're like, ah, no, I've never heard of anything like that. But if I do, I'll get in touch with you. We leave a, we've got cards made up now as well with a contact number and email, so we leave that with them as well. That trust is so important, yeah, that trust and networking is absolutely crucial. I mean, in Scotland, we've got the right to roam, so to speak. So we don't have to do a lot of the knocking on doors, but we still prefer to. Especially if it's like access to land and stuff like that. We still like to stop and touch base with people and just be polite about it. Yeah, you're representing the subject. It's important to represent the subject with some dignity and manners, isn't it? And people will respect you more as a result of that, I think. Even if they think you're absolutely barmy, they'll still, you know what I mean, they'll still have some sort of respect for you a little bit, you know, which is, is, is good. You know, I'll take that at the end of the day. I'll take that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the residential sightings in July, I mean, that was after lockdown. There was no sense of it being quieter and less traffic than usual. There was no other factor that might no, have made... it was it was busy. It was only at... So this is the height of summer. I mean, we've got sunlight until what... I'll normally fish until about 11, quarter past 11 at that time of the year. You know, that's still sufficient light for me to fish. So, I mean, this sighting was at about 9 o'clock in the evening, I think it was. I'll just double-check that. But I'm sure it was It was relatively... Uh, I don't know if I've got an exact time for it. I don't think I do. But I'm sure remembering off the top of my head, it was still light. You know what I mean? It, was, it wasn't getting dark at that point in time. There was absolutely no reason for it to be there the only way i can think of is was it going to scavenge there's industrial bins there the shopping center whatever you want to call it industrial state there's a lot of bins there a lot of them cook food there's a lot of processing places there so the only reason i can think of is either one it's just passing through and it's just happened to being disturbed and somebody's seen it you know or it's on its way to scavenge was really the only two options that we've got there i think anyway from what we've seen on the investigation, you know, there was no need, if you like, for it to be there. It can roam wherever it wants, really, you know. But if you get my drift, it was away off the river, it was away from the main forested area. There was not really any main natural prey in that near vicinity for it. You know, was it just passing through? Which, cool, yeah, that happens. You know, we get deer coming down the main street, sometimes it get turned about. But if it wasn't just passing through, then why? You know, what was it doing? Was it looking for an easier bit of prey, you know, a domestic animal? Or was it looking to scavenge, you know? 
we've heard urban sightings before, but never ones as clear or as you know often as, as what these two were. It was interesting for the both of us, uh, and we spent a good few hours out there trying to figure out what was going on. So that following up, do you find that a challenge to integrate into your life and family and everything? Is the sort of novelty factor kicking in? Future years, is that going to be difficult to keep up? How do you manage all of that? Uh, difficult. We both do, to be honest with you. So I, I'm a gardener, so that this time, you know, during the summer, it's just mental for me. You know, it's a really busy time of the year. So that, for one factor, is I can't get out as often. You know, Paul's really busy at his work as well, but we've both got a family life as well. So when Paul phones me to say, look, we've had a really fresh sight in it, like the back of living at night, are we going to go and see it? It kind of, the wife has a few star words to say. Paul doesn't come to the house often, so he's, he's a bit scared, I think. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things, you know, we're both really busy, but we try to make time for it. As going on, I'm hoping that I'm going to have more time as I get older. It says Paul, I mean, he's ancient compared to me, so I mean, he might struggle more than me. <laughs> Mind you, you've, you've just admitted you're a fisherman. I mean, that's time-consuming as well, isn't it? But what about your fishing yeah. networks and fishing contacts? Have any of those seen them? You know what? I've got no fishing contacts at all, believe it or not. I know it's a big thing for you because you, you mention it quite a lot throughout your, your podcast and that. I've got fishing contacts always in the sense of like, oh, where's good to go? But I've got one uh, really good friend who I go fishing with who used to work in the police down in Cornwall. He's confirmed to me that he knows of ones that have been released and such like, big cats that have been released and such like. But that's about as far as it gets to my fishing contacts. You know, I'm always mentioning it, you know, to folk, you know, like, oh, have you seen anything in the past and da 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 but nobody's ever came forward in that sense, certainly not any fishing contacts, unfortunately. But I live in hope, you know, we might get something one day. Yeah, you've got to work your networks and everything, yeah. I didn't realise how relatively fresh to the subject and your investigation work you were, David, but in the time you've been at it, are there any other, is there one other key sighting report or incident you've followed up that really sticks out as something memorable and interesting and that you've, you've learnt from? We've had so many. I, I mean, certainly there was one in the, in the local area where we had a, a big cat run in broad daylight, the witness says it was chasing a, a deer from what he's seen. So, yeah, it was, it was basically it was chasing a deer across this field in broad daylight, which we couldn't believe. We did believe it, but it was one of these ones as well, like, it, really brazen. So it's a really well-walked area, really well-walked. So you've seen the deer jumping over the fence, and then basically a few seconds later it would have been uh, here we go. I've got the same report here. I just saw a big deer running over the field. A few seconds later, a big black cat running after it. This cat caught up with the deer in no time. Size and speed of that thing was fast. He was actually scared. He actually says he was scared to walk through uh, the woods after that. I walked through that area constantly, and it was just sort of like, you know, it's literally my doorstep. And it was quite. Like, oh, oh, wow. So we've had as well in this area. So I've actually went and investigated in this area myself. We had our, our sighting report. Well, our sighting report, it was a dead deer report, if you like, up a tree. 
So I went down to investigate this area. I went down. I didn't actually have my dog at the time with me, which is, is weird. I can't remember why not. But I took my sister's dog with me. And I don't know his tells or tales, you know, if something's wrong, if something's there. When I was going down in this area, I started to get this weird feeling, like I'd be getting watched, if you like. Okay. I can't remember what they call it. It's, it's one of your senses, apparently. And the dog started to act weird as well. And it's really stood out in the, the fact that I've never liked to go back down in that area as well. And the fact that we've now seen this sight in broad daylight during the day, it's a weird one for me. I don't know how I feel about it. The area that we're talking about is, it's a really active area right now. I think Paul's probably mentioned it to you a few times. You know, it's right along the river. Earlier in the year, I think we had about three or four bone carcasses, you know, deer carcasses turn up in this area. So it's a really active area at the moment. Yes, we heard about it in episode 61. Yeah, in this area, we managed to actually take my first ever cast. Great. This is the thing, we, we cast and the amount of time we've spent, this is the first one we've ever cast. It's hard to find them. We're not just going out there and just picking any sort of one that looks good, you know. It's an absolute nightmare. There's loads of dog walkers, everything like that. It's hard work trying to get that perfect cast, if you like. Absolutely. It's difficult enough to find in the first place. Yeah, and then try to cast it. So, I mean, this area... So it's probably not maybe a sighting, but this area and the sightings that have come out, we've actually had a sighting in that area, two of them on the same exact same day, just yards from each other. From different witnesses? From different witnesses. Great, yeah. Couldn't have collaborated or anything. You know, it's another one of these ones where they couldn't have collaborated in any way at all. So for me, it's a hot spot. It's a good learning curve. The fact that the dog was acting different and I was getting uh, strange vibes in that from the area as well, it just all sort of starts to click together. It's like that feeling if you ever get, I don't know if you've ever, like you're being watched almost. Yeah. You didn't actually get to the location where it was allegedly up a tree, the carcass? I, I did. I searched the area, but it, there was no sign of anything there when I got there. Okay. Which was another puzzling one for me as well. Nothing there, no sign, you know, I walked the area back and forth. Me and Paul have actually walked that area recently as well and found the new lot of bones anyway that have got the the marks in it and that as well, the pick marks and that in it as well, which I think we sent away to you. I don't know if we sent a picture to you or something like that of them as well. Yeah, there's a new student at the lab at the Royal Agricultural University this academic year who's going to be doing the monitoring of those toothpits. So, yeah. Uh, they're in the queue, hopefully. Yeah, which which is good as well. So th- this area, it's a learning curve for me. You know, we've, we've gotten my first ever cast there. You know, strange and weird feelings when I'm going down to investigate that certain area. It's active as, as you can. You know, I often take my dog with me when we go on investigations. She's small enough that she's not going to really do much damage to any sort of pug mark or anything like that. But, She's quite good at telling me when there's something else about in that. Foxes, deer, such like is that. So I often take her and quite trust her with, with her instincts as well, you know, for things that me and Paul can't see. Very good. That's very good. And what about that case where the guy claims he saw uh, one chasing a deer? What was the outcome? Did, did the deer get throttled? Did he see that get... Um... Basically, across the field, the deer crossed the fence. I met up with this gentleman as well and walked the area. Crossed the fence and basically there was about a foot or two of path. 
So not a very thin path going along the fence line. We could barely walk it at points. And then it was just a steep embankment going down. So basically, he said the deer jumped over it and cleared it. And then the cat basically jumped almost at the same time. It was very close to the deer. And he basically heard them sort of fall down the embankment. He heard this big racket down the embankment. Whether cat had caught the deer and they were both rolling or whether they'd both taken a tumble or whatnot. We went down, there'd been a high wind, so the leaves were sort of already naturally turned up, if you like. You know, they weren't flat packed and then there was a mad mess in between all the other ones uh, where something had been rolling about. So it was quite hard to tell if there'd been anything, but I know that that gentleman's also quite active in the area. He did say we'd get in touch if there's anything else that he's, he's found or whatnot, which is always good, again, for us to build up our contact. And he walks that area all the time. But yeah, the outcome was that is we're not sure what actually happened. You know, he, he says he, he did hear the big racket of them both going down that embankment. Myself and him went and walked it. There were some areas that were, it was just that steep. You know, we just could not access it at all, which was unfortunate. But that's just the way it goes sometimes. But a very, what an awesome sighting. Not many people see that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they talk about rubbing it in there. <laughs> If you were going to have a sighting, uh, that would be it. But this gentleman's had another sighting when he was younger as well. When he was driving home one night with his friends, he seen one in a tree, I believe. Wow. Yeah, big cat up a tree uh, one night when driving home from somewhere. He was in the, the back of his friend's car or something like that when they were driving home. seems to be that once you've seen one, you, you see another. You've got your eye in. Yeah, yeah, so to speak, you know, uh, that's it. You know, you can't help but see it sort of thing. And also, not many people see them in trees. I mean, they obviously would be in trees sometimes, and uh, that is r- rarer than it should be in some ways. We often forget to look in the trees. You'll look at the trunk. You'll look at the main trunk for, obviously, your scratch marks and such like. But often me and Paul find ourselves at some point in the day having to remind either one of us or each other to look up also. We're down on the ground mainly trying to look for, you know, your pug marks and such like. We also forget that, you know, it could be up a tree. That's where a dog with you is potentially useful. Yeah, she's good. She's a wee Jack Russell. She's she's brilliant, really alert. But at the end of the day, if you think about it, if you know if these animals are hunting their natural prey, sometimes their natural prey don't see them before it's too late. So I mean, it's not a massive edge, but it's better than nothing at all. If something's on the wind, if it's up in a tree, you know, that is something that she's going to probably see before either of us do. Or it'd be able to indicate to us anyway as well. It's also as well, if you let them have the run, if they're in and out of like uh, the thick undergrowth, there's a good chance that they might actually chase something out as well. Responsible dog walker as well. You know, you've got to be careful of where you're letting your dog off the lead at and stuff like that. Yeah. I'd do that and get confidence with her. But, you know, you still have to be careful whose land you're on, what livestock's about as well. So I wouldn't advise to just let them go wild. But, it is always sometimes quite a good a good thing to have as a, as a good dog with you as well. Yeah, yeah. David, we're running out of time, unfortunately. It's all been super stuff and so nice to hear these extra pointers from yeah. Scotland and so good that you're in such a productive area and let's hope you do get to see one. Let's hope so, yes. <laughs> yes. 
even sending toothpick samples to a university, you know, that's got to be a good part of the work. You know, that is getting potential evidence to somebody who can, you know, analyse it and research it and put it in a bigger picture. And the networking you're doing with local people and local informants and building up the trust, it's vital, crucial work, which will hopefully pay dividends in, in future years. Yeah, yeah. Is there any final point that you want to make before we sign off? Get in touch with us. If you're wanting to investigate, if you've got a site in, you know, get in touch with us. Paul's email's up there already. Get in touch with myself on the Facebook page. Uh, more boots in the grounds, uh, always a good thing for us. And you do really want to build up a network of active investigators throughout Scotland, all working together, pulling together, which is how it should be. And that's terrific news. Yeah, definitely. Splendid to talk to you, David. Very good luck. Great, thanks for having me. We'll keep in touch and with yourself and Paul. We have got Scottish Wildcat briefing from Dr Andrew Kitchener coming up. That will be a real highlight. He's your main man for scientific um, yeah. research on cats in the wild with an international reputation so scotland coming again but meantime Brilliant. yeah thanks ever so much david for coming on the show thank you too rick thank you for our next guest we welcome back frank tunbridge to the show frank featured way back in episode four of the podcasts and we also heard from him as part of episode 25 in this next session, we're going to hear about highlights of sightings reports to Frank during 2021. We have a splendid word of the week to hear from him, and we're going to hear all about the writings and the work of Jim Corbett and Kenneth Anderson, the British big game hunters in India who wrote books in the 1940s and 1950s about tigers and leopards and much more. And Frank's going to offer his reflections on their work. So, Frank, great to have you back. Hello and welcome. Yeah, and great to come back and uh, continue where I left off, virtually. Yes, because in episode four, we did have a bit on Corbett. We'll hear about highlights of your sightings reports all over Britain later on, Frank. But first of all, you're going to take us through some highlights from Corbett and Anderson. And I initially said just Jim Corbett. You said no, Kenneth Anderson as well, because Kenneth Anderson was Southern Indian based and Jim Corbett was based in North India. And they wrote books in the 40s and 50s, and I think Anderson even in the 60s. And some of the podcast listeners do mention them to me. And I thought, right, we ought to just have some extracts a bit more from Frank when he's next on. So here we go. So yeah, they're labelled as big game hunters, but they were much more than that, weren't they, Frank? Yeah, they were. They were both brought up in India, both knew the jungles inside out. Two characters, both with the same mission to rid the area where they were, and further afield even, of man-eating tigers and leopards. And also, in the case of Anderson, he expanded that onto elephants and sloth bears as well, which are quite a menace to people in those days. Because you've got to realise that in India, they had no protection against these at all. Maybe a rusty old muzzle loader, this sort of thing. And tigers, especially would uh, board a roost in villages. There's one particular story from Anderson where tiger was, this man-eating tiger, entirely, entirely on people. Some of them actually chop and change. They go over to cattle and then wildlife and then back to people. Some dedicated ones. And this one, he had such a rule of terror that the people couldn't go anywhere. 
whole village was locked down. And, and this tiger would actually just stand in the road waiting for the next victim to come out. And so people like Anderson and um, Corbett rid the area of these animals. But, of course, creatures like this, they're so intelligent. They're so cunning, and they employ everything against the hunter's argument. And it takes years. In fact, I mean, Corbett was born in 1875, and he killed one of the most famous managed leopards, the managed leopard of Rodriguez, in 1926, which means he was 51 years old when he did this. You can see how long the man was hunting. He was a colonel in the British Indian Army at the time. He was employed by the local government to rid this area of these uh, killers. Man-eating, leopards, tigers, they take up their man-eating. The main reason is that they're injured due to a fight with a porcupine and the quills getting embedded in their arm and paws and they can't walk properly, so they can't run down their natural prey. The other thing is they're shot at, of course, and injured, and same sort of thing. So in other words, they're injured. The other one is that during um, a cholera epidemic, when people were dying so fast, they couldn't take them down to, down to the Ganges, put the ashes in there. So they would throw them out over the cliff or the side of the village with a hot coal in their mouth. And of course, all carnivores were opportunistic. And they were coming along. And of course, they come across these dead bodies and they thought, okay, there's a free meal. And they, they started eating them. They got a taste of human flesh. And after the epidemic cleared, the leopards still carried on. The leopard that killed the most people was the Panar leopard, Panar, P-A-N-A-R, and that killed in excess of 400 people. Amazing when you think about it, how many people that these animals can kill. And of course, the people had to go about their everyday work. So something like this terrified everyone, and they're all indoors before sunset, locked up and never to come out until the light came up next morning. Corbett operated in the Himalayan foothills up in northern India. He was born in 1875, whereas Anderson was born in 1910. Their methods of hunting were the same virtually. But a lot of it were the native people's thoughts themselves because they would rid the whole area of um, wild pig, deer, um, samba deer, spotted deer, and such like. There'd be nothing left. And so obviously, you know, the animals had to eat. After the areas wiped out all the wildlife poaching, etc., they would then um, take up killing livestock. And of course, obviously, that would rouse the anger of the inhabitants who would try to chase them off. Then they may kill a person, found it so easy, and they'd take it up from there. I've read all their books, and I find them both exhilarating, exciting, almost you're there with them. Corbett, I would say, is very meticulous. Corbett would write his experiences in, say, maybe 100 words of one particular chapter, whereas Anderson would elaborate on this and it must be, be like 300 words. And the reason for this is that Anderson would, say it's a man-eater or one particular area, he would start it off by would informing the reader of how lovely the area was. They go into great detail about the wildlife, about all the flora and fauna there. It's good. He, he, he led you a tour for the jungle, more or less, before he got onto the subject, which is good. It's great. It set the scene. Corbett would do it, but in a much more abrupt method. But both of them had a great relationship. 
with the people in India they work with, you see. And for instance, Corbett, he loved India. He loved the people. Like he says here, in my India, the India I know, there are 400 million people. Of these people who are admittedly poor and who are often described as India's starving millions, among whom I've lived and whom I love, that I shall endeavor to tell in the pages of this book, which I humbly dedicate to my friends, the poor of India. He had such a great relationship with everyone, and they respected him. And the same with Anderson as well. There was, I think there was a time when India became independent. I think it was 1947. Mm. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And his son, Donald, said to him, and they're all celebrating, all the Indians running in the streets, firing their guns and shouting and screaming like because of the, the independence. And he said, Dad, he said, I don't think you'd better go out, he said, because Europeans wouldn't be very welcome now. Don't be silly, he said. I've lived with these people for years and they love me. He said, I'm just giving you a warning. Anyway, Anderson went out to the streets with them. He said, his son said, he came back an hour or two later covered in garlands of flowers because they loved the man. They loved him, you see. Obviously, if you're dealing with them, wild animals, and the people, the local people, the indigenous people, they know the area like the back of their hand, you see. So you need these people. But he said, the problem was, he said, they were so in awe of tigers and leopards. You had problems getting information out of them. They were terrified. They were so superstitious about it all. They're frightened to mention the name tiger or leopard, tiger especially, because they think if there's a man-eater out there, they mention it. They will be the next victim. Tiger will hear about it and say, right, you're next in line, this sort of thing. So they had hell of a job to get the information because of the fear. And they used native hunters, which were shikaris. They had personal friends, one or two, which used to stick with them all the time. Like Corbett said in one, one of his chapters, he said, it's called terror. There's a lot of people think of terror, but you want to know the real meaning of terror, he said. You want to be in the jungles, he said. On your own, he said, in the dark, walking along, he said, knowing that's a man-eating tiger that is up to the moment has killed over 100 people. And you don't hear him, you don't see him until he's on you. He said, and Ahmed, he said, my heart was beating all the time. He said, I was terrified, he said. But as long as you keep presence of mind, he said, Corbett killed so many man-eating leopards and tigers to boot. He killed so many of them, which rid the area of these animals, making people can go about their daily lives and live in peace. Because most of the tigers, like you said, most of the tigers and leopards, if you meet them, they just wander off. They're not man-eaters. We're not their natural prey. They want to get away from us. It's only a dedicated man-eater that you've got to watch out for. They used to do a thing called gooming Anderson. Here's our word of the week coming up. Yes, gooming. G-H-O-O-M-I-N-G. And a fantastic word because actually conjures up, even the word itself conjures up the meaning of what it is. And that is that he would go out on a moonlit night, no weapons at all. This is how sure himself, unless there's a manager in the area. And he would walk through the jungles and he would just take in the flora, the fauna, all the noises of the night animals and everything else. And he used to stop dead still and freeze, which you have to do nowadays, which I do. And I go out 
and you're looking at wildlife, just normal wildlife. If you just freeze, and when he says freeze, don't move at all, but just keep dead still, he said, and then you'll see the wildlife. Yeah, stand with your back to a tree or something and, and be part of the tree trunk or something. That's right. So you diffuse your silhouette, you see, yeah. uh, like you say, or against cover, something like this, you see. One of the very bland definitions I read on the web of gooming said a walk yeah. in the woods without an agenda. Well, it's much more than that, really, isn't it? Well, yes, that's that's I'll be describing it, really. It's just a basic. It's a walk in a woods or jungle area, and generally at night, when, when Anderson used to go out, to take in the sights and sounds of the natural world around you. Yeah. And sort of... Uh, Immerse yourself in it. Yeah. Which we should do. I mean, all of us should have some going the wilderness here and there. Anywhere near us. Don't have to be very far away. And you can go into an area and it's amazing how I love it. And you go out there, only maybe sometimes, you know, 100 yards from a main A road. And you enter a little wood. And if you just stand still, keep quiet, look around, amazing what you can see and what you can hear, you know, and tracks and signs. So, yeah, the gooming, it's a very good word. Describes mm. very well what I just said, the actions. I remember about also Anderson. was Anderson was, as I said, born in 1910. He was in more of the age of the motor car. He had a fleet of vehicles, quite a fleet of, I think it's Model T Fords, 13, I think. Mm. He had quite a lot of money. He had quite a lot of land over there. Corbett had a bit of land, but Anderson worked for the local forestry department. He's like a supervisor of the gangs around there. He lived in Bangalore. And so he operated, as we said earlier, in southern India, around like Mysore and places like this, which also contained manis and tigers and leopards right across India at that time. And he had this car, I think it's a stewed baker or something, some American. And he used to drive this from place to place. And once or twice, he said a leopard land on the bonnet and take off. <laughs> it's just gone along, wow, you know. And it was open top, of course, this car. <laughs> and he would drive for miles on some of these tracks on it. And so he could cover a much greater area than Corbett. Corbett would walk everywhere. Anderson would walk. But he would drive from one area to another. But Corbett would think nothing of walking 30 miles from one village to another. Regardless whether it was a man he's from the area, just that he's right over him. And he's being an ex-military. He knew how to use it. It's a crack shot. And he always used a caliber of 303, four caliber around that size, which you need a big heavy bullet to stop a charging elephant or, or a charging um, tiger. He was very meticulous in what he did. I get the impression Anderson, he has more sort of laid back and Corbett, so to speak. Yes, you were telling me that Anderson was more of a tabloid writer in style and Corbett was more of a slightly more scholarly broadsheets of style. So they were complementary in a way in their writings. That's right. I mean, if you like to compare it to papers, I'd say Corbett would be a broadsheet writer, something like the Telegraph or the Times, whereas Anderson would be more like the sort of tabloids, like Daily Mail or the Express. They're both good in their own, own way. They're both very good. Was it Anderson made the distinction of a leopard and a tiger attack? And you could survive a leopard attack, but you wouldn't survive a tiger attack. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they both said that at one particular point. 
is that, and it's quite true, you know, leopards, some of them only like 50 pounds or so in weight. You stand more of a chance fighting one of those off, which has happened quite a few times. If you look in the history, you'll see people, they look like they're, when you look at one particular guy, he looks like a mummy. He's covered in bandages yes. all over. But he did kill the leopard. He, he crushed its ribs with his, uh, with his knees and put his hand out. Now, quite an interesting story. That's another story. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you fight back. Normally, what kills the people, even if the actual wounds don't kill the people, like a bite in the throat, etc., um, or puncture in their lungs, it's the gangrene afterwards from the decaying meat in the claws of the carnival. Yes, the infections. And so, of course, if you're in a place in the middle of a jungle somewhere, no doctors from miles and miles, you can't do much about But what they both used to carry, they used to carry little red, it's red crystals, which you put with water, and it becomes a very strong disinfectant. And they pour it into the wounds. And marvellous has gone out of my head now. I got some. I use it all the time. Use it for fire lighting as well. You mix it with sugar and grind it down. Or put antifreeze with it and um, squeeze it together in a handkerchief. It'd be a, it's a chemical fire lighter. Oh, yes. And he was saying, but a tiger attack, it'll wipe you out. He described it as, as if you're being covered by a blanket in a twinkling of an eye. But in many cases, tigers didn't kill right away. They'd, they'd pick the victim up, but in the small of the back, they're so powerful. Mm. Carry them off. And there's many cases, it must have been terrible. Of the villagers seeing a tiger, say, pick up one of the women who was cutting the grass on the edge of the village, and you take her off screaming, and she's screaming and shouting. The tiger's just carrying off to the lion, and, and you hear these screams going into the distance. Corbett said, he'd put her down, he got fed up with screaming, and just bite her for the head, kill her, and carry on with her. It's fantastic stories about both of them. Yes, and they were very strong on emphasizing the patience for waiting. That's right, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. They would sit up all night there. Many times they both say that we were lucky not to fall asleep because in many cases, one case in particular, Anderson was saying that he nearly nodded off. He pulled himself together and luckily he did because the leopard was after climbed a tree without him knowing. So stealthily, he said it was like 15 foot away or 10 foot away watching him. He said, luckily, he said, if I'd have dozed off, I most probably wouldn't have written these words now, this sort of thing. Yeah. If you had to recommend one book from Corbett and one book from Anderson, which would they be? Um, Corbett has written a book called The Temple Tiger, which is quite good, very good indeed. You can get the omnibus of Anderson, which covers the whole lot. Yeah, same with Corbett. I mean, I've read Corbett's uh, Omnibus, that, or whatever it is, yeah, yeah, the compilations, and that, that's very useful. A man eating leopard with rugby triads, good, but of course it's about the same animal all the way through, you know. Whereas others, you've got chapters and a man eating leopard, a man eating tiger. So it gives you variation in it. And also um, gives you how you would cope with the tigers against the leopard, because they're both different. And they both mentioned. The cat family have got very poor sense of smell. They rely mostly on their eyesight. Their secondary sense is their hearing. But their sense of smell is rubbish compared to dogs, wolves, and coyotes, and bears. Their sense of smell is terrible. But they both say that uh, they didn't really worry about approaching carnivore, 
they used to call it carnivora, um, leopards and tigers, when which way the wind was blowing, because they knew their sense of smell was actual rabbit. Yeah. What book from Anderson would you highlight? Anderson, Nine Man Eaters and One Rogue. Because that covers tigers, a couple of leopards, and also a rogue elephant, which is the rogue, the rogue elephant. Reading these books, um, you can listen to audio versions of them, obviously. But I find, I always have found, that reading a book gives you more, um, you're there. You, you paint the picture yourself. Yeah, because the readings are on YouTube now as well. We'll put the YouTube link to one of the readings websites, which is recommended on YouTube for both of these um, authors. I think it's testament to their impact that they're still they're enduring, aren't they? People still crave their books and read them now. They're still popular. I've got most of the, all the first editions. I managed to pick up all the hardcover first editions. Yeah, lucky so-and-so. Corbett wrote one on a black panther, didn't he? Is that uh, is that worth reading for for Black Leopard? No, it's Anderson. Right? Uh, the Black Panther of Sivan Pali, and what he was saying that the Black Leopard or Black Panther, as you call it, the Black Leopard is more robust, more um, fearsome in its approach. It's um, much more feared than a normal spotted leopard, for whatever reason. And the strange part about it, which I've found, I don't know if this is a fact, really, but, oh, no, this is another book I've got, which is very good, actually, called um, The Leopard in India. Oh, yes, the more contemporary one, the more contemporary scholarly book. Yes, but it gives you all the facts and figures, and it also gives you quite a lot of uh, witness accounts as well. And it said in there, in the coloration of leopards, it said the black leopard, it said, most instances under the pelage, you know, the coat, as they call it, of the leopard, um, the black leopard, in sunlight and strong light, you can see the rosettes, the five-fingered rosettes, as they call it. Because if you put five fingers together and, or, and your thumb and you dip it into um, some ink and put it on a... And we used to do it years ago when I was a kid. You can make a leopard's coat. It's quite, it's quite good, actually. Because the rosettes are different. You can see the rosettes through the actual blackness of the coat in sunlight but in one part of it, it said they're not all the same some of them you don't have the rosettes at all they're just jet black yes i'm looking up now yes i have a copy that i read a while ago the leopard in india a natural history by jc daniel and uh, yes yeah, a very good reference book and, and just you can dip into it and pick up little nuggets you know now and again if you want as well yeah that's very good and it shows you how they leopards hunt in pairs a lot which is not known Monkeys especially, they tend to cooperate um, like lions do, which wasn't known before in cheetahs, of course. Corbett is always saying that he would never shoot a leopard or a tiger, which um, didn't need killing, uh, which subsisted on its natural prey. He wouldn't shoot it. He was a conservationist. He'd only shoot man-eaters or cattle killers, which would um, take obviously keep taking all over stock. It's rather strange, really, because when you look up both these guys, which you can do in great detail now on the internet, I don't know what it is. People tend to criticise nowadays things which we used to take for fact years ago. A lot of people say that, oh, no, you'd just shoot them anyway. I don't know. I don't think so. Obviously, to sell books, people tend to sort of colour them up a bit more and to make them more attractive to the buyer. 
who knows? But I think I think most of it is 100% or 90% come come over as they tell it at the time. It's a fascinating books, fascinating, both of them. Splendid. Thank you very much, Frank, for that. Let's move on to 2021 Gloucestershire and around. And in fact, I think we're also going to have a case from Norfolk. But So you often in Gloucestershire Live commenting on reports and photos sometimes maybe even fake photos we don't maybe you know some of them are a bit suspicious but they all anyway generate further reports because you get quoted and people see your name there and you get more reports and it gathers momentum and it's very useful because you got over 50 last year from that session of um, articles in Gloucestershire Live and they cascade to national papers so I think we're going to hear about an overview of the general attitude of the people who reported sightings to you and then you you're going to select one or two to just sort of summarise without giving away the, the details of the locations? Normally, I get roughly, hard to say, time of the year, whatever, two to three reports every month of the year, more so towards the autumn and winter. But it's hard to say because during the lockdown from March 21 onwards, I was getting quite a lot of reports coming in. What well, is old saying that uh, animals like peace and quiet a man likes noise and riot, which is quite true. <laughs> I had quite a few reports closer, nearer towns as well. They were sort of reclaiming their old territories. And I think that what made the sightings cascade more was that the original one was this couple who saw this uh, big black cat, they said, size of a German shepherd or larger, down in the Forest of Dean area, jumping across the road and it cleared a bank. And how they described it, and I think this tickled the, the fancy of um, press. They described it as just like a Puma logo, like the one you got on the sportswear. And, of course, that seemed to sort of, like I said, you know. Resonate. Yeah, yeah, resonate. This is something different. And, of course, then it went to the papers, and I had my email at the end. And I had, it, it just started coming in all over the country. Quite amazing. It ended up with 50 or 51, around about 50. And I replied to everyone from the ages. And it's fascinating. But a lot of them, once they actually tell you their tale and their experience, they got it off their chest, so to speak. You had two attitudes. One was the person say, yes, ever since I saw this big cat, I go back there every day virtually, see if I can see it again. And it'd be fantastic. You get another person say, I don't know, nothing more to do with it. I'm terrified. I should never go back there again. So you get two, two different attitudes. The fascination and the fear. Exactly. Like you just said it, yeah. But although a lot of people have both at the same time, you can have that mixed reaction, don't yeah. you think? I, I, I picked that up from witnesses. So I had so many, and they were so vivid. And the email, you could, like reading, reading Corbett's and Anderson's book, you can put yourself there. You paint a picture in your mind where you are. Mm. And you think to yourself, well, wow, these people are not making this up. They're just saying what they saw. And you think, this is actually amazing. There's one particular guy. He had a Bengal cat, which, as we know, is not too far distant related to the Indian leopard cat. Because they're fairly wild, a lot of these, and a lot of them do go off and take off on their own, you see, because... Mm only so many, so many generations away from the wild. And he said, the cat used to go out, this cat, as a female. He said, and he heard this noise, and she was playing with a big black 
cat the size of a German shepherd. They were actually cavorting around together. See. Beyond the garden, was this? Yeah, yeah, he watched it. And he said, on a couple of occasions, why he never filmed it, I don't know. I said, no, he's not. And he said, the cat came back almost with a smile on her face. He really enjoyed herself, see. She wasn't treated as prey, which could have been the case. Exactly. On another occasion, we hear of these big cats actually taking domestic cats as prey, you know. There's one particular sighting that came in. It's in Somerset. Watch it. So anyway, it's a big area. Watch it. This guy said he was out on his normal daily walk. It's daytime. Out on his normal daily walk, which used to cover about three or four miles. And he'd walk, go over this railway crossing, um, over the level crossing, and get onto the track, walk down this field on a footpath. He's, he's high up. Then he'd, he'd go down to a sort of slight valley area. Then he'd come up the other side, do a loop, and come back the other way, you see. And there's some woods nearby. And in between him and um, this footpath was about a four-foot-high hedge. And he was walking along, and he noticed something coming the other way towards him. And he thought, what's that? He said, it, he described it as looking like a young lioness. He got closer and closer. He didn't know what it was. He thought maybe it's a big dog, first of all. Then he got closer, and he thought, Wow, you know, this is like a young lioness or a puma, as you described it. Fawning colour. He said, walked with a swagger, a long rope-like towel. He said, wasn't hurrying itself. He said, and I'm thinking to myself, I've got a, I'm walking towards it and it's coming towards it. We're going to pass each other. And he said, I daren't look. I didn't want to turn my head. I daren't turn around and run back. I was told not to run. He said, because you know, you resemble prey, and so he'll chase you. And so he said, kept walking. He kept walking, he said, and halfway along the hedge, he said, it just ambled along. It, it must have seen me. And he said, I glanced across at it and carried on walking. And it, we just passed each other like two people walking in the street. I was on my own, miles from anywhere. Uh, and this big cat, which obviously I, my heart was pumping, he said, and I just kept calm and walked the other way. And we passed each other. So when I got roughly about 100 yards past it, so there was a hill in front of me, which I normally go up a sedate pace, he said. <laughs> I run up that hill, he said. I'd never run up that hill so fast in all my life, he said. Got to look back, he said. And big cat was still there, and just casually walking along the line of the hedge the other way, you know. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating how he how he described this, you know. Yes, he didn't have a dog with him, Frank, on that occasion. No, 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 he's on his own. Well, I, I mean, I've twice, once from from one of your reports and, and very recently in Wigan, on the edge of Wigan uh, last year, heard of a report where, similar report, where people have had dogs with them as well and the same things happened. And it's almost like the witness has thought, 
the cat has thought, hang on, there could be a confrontation here. I might win it, but I might get injured and it's going to be very awkward. So I'll just sort of carry on, keep my head down and uh, avoid, you know, causing a fuss. And so both parties have, you know, adopted those rules and just walk past each other as if they're not, they don't exist. So it looks like the the cat is sort of tactically thinking, can't be bothered, you know, mustn't have a confrontation or get injured, just keep going. Do you think that's what's happening? Could be, could be. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, behaviour very difficult to explain, you know. In most cases, they just, you see them, a brief glimpse on a forest ride or somewhere, and then they're gone. Yes. And and this is why people say, oh, all these cameras out there, you never take a photograph. Well, I can assure you, like this guy said, and all the witnesses I've spoke to in this situation, you see a big cat 10 yards ahead of you just sat there walking, the last thing you want to do is take your eyes off of it and put your hand down or, or take a photograph. You know, to you, it's a large out-of-place animal in this country. Normally, you see in the safari park, and it's and it's dangerous, and it could attack you. So this is why that doesn't happen, you see. Funnily enough, we all talk about the 1976 Dangerous Animals Act as being a sort of pivotal sort of date when people, after that time, release animals because of, you know, the regulations and the and uh, licensing fees and all that. Yes, but we also spoke about in the past about animals before that time. And I received an email the other day from this guy because uh, he picked up something in one of the papers. And he said, I'd just like to tell you of uh, my site. He said, yeah, it's 1963. It's going quite a way back. 1963. And him and his partner, wife, were on horseback at the time. And a very similar thought sort of thing I just said about the guy walking, but they were on horseback and they had a couple of dogs with them. Mm. And they were going along. And a field away, or one and a half fields away, he said, we saw a mountain lion walking along the other way, he said. I just thought I'd let you know, he said. It's quite clear. It's daylight, he said. I looked it up, he said, and this is back in 1963. So it shows you how these creatures have been around for quite a while. And of course, what we don't realize is all carnivores are, are so stealthy, so elusive. You've just got to be in the right place at the right time to see one. As I've always said in my articles, you know, when you do, it's a sight that will live with you for the rest of your life. You'll never forget this. Ones up trees are to be expected, but they're not very common, actually, are they? But you did have one from Norfolk up a tree, is that right? One of, the, one of these reports last year? Yeah, I did. Yeah, like you say, they're not, people don't generally come across them like trees. They come across them, like we just said, they're on, we're out for a walk on horseback or out with a dog, this sort of thing. Yeah, this, this lady rang me up and she said, I have to tell you this, she said. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I had this young um, husky puppy. And she said, it's only a little pup, about nine weeks old or so, ten weeks old. And I was taken out with me, she said on a lead, she said. I was walking along and I went to this wooded area, she said. I've been there quite a few times before, she said. It was dusk, she said, and just just getting dark. And she said, I've been in there walking along with the pup. And she said, all of a sudden, she said, there's a tree ahead with a low branch on, which I've walked under quite a few times before. Suddenly, she said, there's something hanging down from, this, from the tree. First of all, she said, I thought it might be a, a branch that broke off and was just hanging down. Then I got closer, she said. I could see it was black, she said, very snake-like. <laughs> and she said, 
and it was twitching and moving, and there was no wind or anything. So she said, I thought, what's that? And she said, I walked forward, and she said, looked up, and there's a black leopard or very similar-looking creature on the bough of the tree. Just sat there. He said, I was actually petrified, she said. When I saw what I saw, she didn't take any notice of me at all. She must have known I was there. I grabbed the puppy, she said, under my arm, she said, and I ran all the way back to my house, she said, and I was actually exhausted, out of breath. I thought I was going to clap. So sites like this, you see. Funnily enough, I did a talk recently with um, one of the guys you know, with Alan, and we did, we gave a talk together up in um, in, in Painswick Women's Institute. Yeah, in the Cotswolds. Yeah, in the Cotswolds, just south of Stroud, just north of Stroud. Sorry, north of Stroud. That's right. We had quite a good turnout actually, even though it's tipping it down with rain. We had like seventy people turn up, even though you know there's COVID restrictions on as well. Out of maybe seventy people, we always get say eight, nine who had a sighting and who um, reported to us in great detail. One of the organisers said to me, she said, oh, there's a lady coming tonight, she said. You'd like to speak to her. I said, why is that? She said, she's seen one up a tree three times, not far from here, up the road, sat in a tree trunk on a, on a branch. And unfortunately, she never turned up that night, most because of the rain, whatever. I know, it's typical, isn't it? I mean, that, that's the time to put a trail camera. If you know a tree that they're going to ascend... That's right, that's right, yeah. I've had people ring me up and say, there's a guy from Hereford some years ago, he said, he said to me, do you remember I told you about that big cat I saw a year ago in my orchard? I said, yes. He said, it went down to a tree, he said, just like a big tomcat, he said, it, it sort of um, backed up against it, put its tower in the air and peed against the tree and marked it. He said, off it went. I said, yeah. He said, well, it's come back again, he said. I saw it again, he said. Do more or less exactly the same thing a week to the to the day when he did it before. Yeah. Having said that, Frank might have done that when he didn't see it. So that is the that's the problem with that kind of um, observation. Of course, yeah. And it's just taking your time and finding this. Like I said, a lot of the times you just go out there and stand still and listen and look, look ahead, look through the undergrowth, look ahead of you. You, that you can then see the sign, see the field sign, and then you come across the tracks. One will lead to the other. You know? Those are the things that Corbett and Anderson really emphasised, wasn't it? Having the patience and the time and the stealth to melt away. And, and that's why I've read them and you learn from them. It's amazing. And people like that who are professionals at it, you see. There's lots of other big game hunters, as they call them, in India as well. Some made the name themselves. But of course, like Corbett said, Many of these stuff you never hear of because they've been outwitted by the animal they're hunting. It's killed them and eaten them. <laughs> yeah, that was the occupational hazard, yeah. Any final thing you want to say before we close out, Frank? It's all been really excellent and, and just what we wanted, so thank you very much. And, uh, and any final reflection, anything you wanted to add to what you've said before we close? I think with the advent of social media, internet, social media, etc., Facebook and such like. In some respects, it's good, but in other other respects, I think it, it it's poor for the subject because, especially with the press hanging around trying to get a sort of um, top notch video of one, 
Uh, they would jump onto anything. And I think it's an exciting prospect that we've got a large carnival in the country now, taking the place of uh, the Lynx. Well, we know there's Lynx already out there as well. Coexisting with the Lynx, really, doing a, a parallel job with the Lynx. That's right, that's right, yeah. Very good to hear from you, Frank. Thank you ever so much for the update and the catch-up and um, great that you're still getting the reports and uh, and are able to advise people and help people with any follow-ups if they want them. And um, lovely to hear the reflections you have on Corbett and Anderson and how relevant it is really to our understanding of these the stealth and behaviour and cunning of these animals today. So thanks ever so much. All you young people out there are interested in the subject, get out there, get out there. There is no substitute for personal observation. Just get out there into the woods. Get out there into the into the um, hills, and you'll be amazed what you come across. You see, it's all there for you. Even if you don't come across a big cat or any evidence, you come across the natural world itself. It's all around you. Yeah, do some gooming. That's right. Yeah, a walk in the woods and see what happens. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much for having me back on. I love talking to you and everyone. You can always email me on my email, franktumbridge at hotmail.co.uk. Brilliant. I'm sure we'll be in touch with you again on the podcast series, but for now, thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Okay, just to sort out the name of the crystals Frank referred to and couldn't remember, well, he phoned me later to inform me they are potassium permanganate. Potassium permanganate is an oxidising agent with disinfectant, deodorising and astringent properties. The crystals are available on the web in little pots that you can order, but no longer in chemists and pharmacies, apparently. In terms of the game hunters and the man-eating tigers and leopards we were hearing about, we have put a couple of links on the website for those. One is a YouTube channel with readings from Corbett and Anderson. The other is a documentary describing similar events last century in Sri Lanka and discussing what kinds of human pressures can influence the behaviour of leopards. Also on the website, under episode 67, we've put a link to a 45-minute feature on big cat sightings that's just been produced by BBC Radio Devon. I helped with that one, and it had reports and phone-ins from four different witnesses, including one from Devon, which was well before the 1976 pivotal date. It also had a very intriguing report from Shropshire that involved the likely predation of peacocks. And of course, they could well be a target, just as peacocks and peahens and similar birds would be in Asia for leopards. That link for the Radio Devon feature is only live till 5th of February 2022, so apologies for those of you listening to this episode at a later time. For our next episode, well, we've just been reminded by Frank of the rather average sense of smell of large cats. So, would the smell of a chicken farm attract a cat like a black leopard? We'll hear directly from a farming couple in Nottinghamshire that run a chicken farm that have experienced a black panther several times in recent weeks. In that one, we'll also discuss thermal cameras, the farm's huskies, and ways that evidence is being pursued there. So we'll hear from the Nottinghamshire Fenland farmed landscape next time. And in relation to Scotland and the mapping of reports that we've heard about from David, well, since David's recording for this show, 
Paul MacDonald, his colleague, has informed me that he has just logged several hundred older reports from a database from the former Scottish Big Cats Trust. That information has trends, patterns and links which can correlate with recently mapped sightings in Scotland. We'll hear more on that from Paul as part of our future programmes from Scotland. We also understand that Big Cat sightings in the Loch Ness area are being heard of again, so we are hoping to cover the Loch Ness Panthers later this year. OK, we are signing off now, so many thanks again to our guests Frank and David. Thank you all for supporting the show, and thanks to everyone who's been in touch recently. Your feedback and your pointers are always welcome, of course. The email address is rick at bigcatconversations.com. Look forward to being back soon. Take care of yourselves and bye for now. Bye.